So we're in Romans 12, and the uh, topic that I would like us to dig into today that I feel God is leading us to as a body, um, you know, Jesus gave a really clear command that's in John 13, 34 through 35. Very simple commandment until you start to unpack it and really think of the implications of what this means for us. So Jesus says, in fact, I think there, it may be on your slide here if you want to look at the, the first slide, John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. That you love one another. A commandment from Jesus given to his followers that we love one another. On first blush, you might say, well, that's pretty basic. He goes on to unpack that a little bit. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Okay, that's getting a little heavier. So not just a command that we love one another, but how do we love one another? In the way that Jesus loves us. And then he goes further to say, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So there's a commandment that Jesus gives us, a simple commandment until you start to unpack what the meaning of that is, that you love one another. How do we love one another? What does that look like? Well, just the same way that Jesus loves us. And in fact, how, how high are the stakes on this commandment? You know, it wasn't a, um, a bit of advice that he gave. It was a commandment. And the entire stake of our witness to the watching world rests on our obedience to this commandment or our disobedience. This is how they will know that you are my followers if you have love for one another. Pretty high stakes. So, so what, what I'd like to do t- today and for the next couple of weeks is to look at one aspect of, of love as described in the New Testament. Um, you may have heard sermons before on the different Greek words of love. Has anyone come across that before? You know, the, okay, a few of you, good, several of you. Um, Can you tell me one of those Greek words of love? Any of you Bible scholars here? Agape. Okay, agape. I heard that one. All right. Uh, What was another one? Phileo. Thankfully, we've got a city in in Pennsylvania that helps us remember that word phileo, right? Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? Uh, Oh, oh, here we go. This guy's going for the extra credit here. Uh, he's going for storge. Yep, that's actually the one we're going to look at today. Usually not on your list of the, of the Greek uh, words for love in the New Testament. What was the one? A married man over here, Sean, he brought up eros. Yes, that is uh, a word that we have also in English. Erotic comes from that word. Any others? Okay. Uh, we're, we're getting to the end of the list. Okay. You know, that's quite, I think you, you nailed quite a few of them. There are more. Um, I would just put a little caveat on the idea that words contain their meanings. Okay, so, if you, so there, there, is a, there is a complex thought that's required. You know, as I'm talking to you right now, you're doing interpretation. There's, uh, you know, my diaphragm is involved. There's air in my lungs. There's a larynx, vocal cords, resonance amplification, and all that is hopefully getting some of it through the the noise of the background fans here in the room and you periodically checking your phone when it buzzes to see what notification you got. 
And some of that noise gets into your head and you filter it and interpret it and you get a small portion of my message, those of you who are awake. That's the complicated, messy process of communication. Uh, I would just put a little caution on a real simplistic uh, sermon that would say, you know, we have only one word for love, the Greeks have four, and here's the real simple meaning for every one of those. It's more complicated than that. If, you're re- if you really want to geek out, there's a book by D.A. Carson called Exegetical Fallacies. <laughs> and he picks this very topic apart. Sorry, Tina. Good luck with that. <laughs> but he, he, he pokes holes in the idea that you know, there's a real simple uh, meaning of the word phileo in Greek. And there's a real simple meaning of the word agape. It always means unconditional divine love. It's, it's more complicated and intertwined. We're going to dig into it a little bit today, but just to give you kind of a, a, what I see as, a, as an overview of these New Testament themes, aspects of love, and when our Savior, our Lord, commands us to love one another as He has loved us, and He says, that's how the watching world will know that you're my disciples. We want to, we want to express that love in all of its fullness toward one another, the same fullness that Jesus used in showing that love to us and continues to use in his love for us. One example of that word phileo that you guys mentioned that was brought up, uh, friendship would be another name for that word, brotherly love. Uh, There's a, a verse in John chapter 15, just a couple chapters after the one that we have on the screen right now, when Jesus says to his followers, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. That's an example of Jesus practicing this kind of brotherly love, a friendship love. And when we are invited into his presence as a family member, uh, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, it's, like Jesus, it's as if Jesus were our brother. And we have that sort of affection and love and camaraderie and friendship, that aspect of love. There's other times where Jesus demonstrates a kind of love that we call compassion, pity. Uh, in, this is a really fun Greek word that maybe you uh, would like to just learn just because it's fun to say. Splanksnizomai. Splanksnizomai. Um, S-P-L-A-N-G-S-N-I-Z-O-M-A-I. There you go. Splunk's Nizamai. And the, and the sign for that is... <laughs> so the word compassion, in, in Greek, that word, it, it's related to the word for your innards. And we kind of have some, some similes in English, some metaphors like that, you know, like and I, at a gut level, I feel that. Or it really went to the heart. Right? And so that's kind of that, that meaning of that word where there is some feeling connected with that word compassion. Jesus, in Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he felt it in his guts when he looked at these people who were wandering around in danger. That's what a sheep without a shepherd that's the condition of a sheep without a shepherd. They're, they're harassed. 
There's wolves that can come in, predators that can move in. They're helpless. They can't fix their own situation. And it's the, the feeling that wasn't just a feeling. It mo- motivated him to action as well. That sort of love that our Savior demonstrates, that splonksnizomai from the gut kind of love. There's also, um, you know, that, that word agape that you brought up. That's, that's a gift love. That's like we have a word altruism. That's when you didn't, you, know, you didn't get a paycheck, but someone gave you something just because they're good, not because you are or because it's your birthday. Or charity would be another word for agape. We see that in John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For this is the way God loved the world. How? He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That ver- I, I, a lot of times we say, we say it in, in the King James Version, for God so loved the world that he gave. It's not, it's not saying that his love was so big that he gave. It's, it's saying God loved the world in this way. God loved the world so, colon, he gave. And that's that agape love that our Father has. It's a giving love. You know, God doesn't have any needs. God is totally sufficient in himself. He's not, you know, like a, a, a lonely grandfather in a rocking chair hoping that one of his kids comes to visit him in need of the worship that we give, in need of the glory that we give, in need of us spending time with him. He is totally sufficient in and of himself. He's the eternal, all-powerful creator God. And so for God, there is no need love. There's only gift love. Now, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, unpacks that a little bit. And he says, don't make the mistake of believing that because God has gift love and our base instinct is a need love, that everything connected with need love is negative and bad. Just because God doesn't have need love doesn't mean that we shouldn't. And the reason is because we're the creature, he's the creator. So we aspire to that gift love that we've seen described here in John 3.16, a love that motivates us to give, a love that's not focused on what we get but on giving. And yet actually there's always some need love in the love that we give because we are dependent upon him. He's God and we're not. That gift love is a beautiful love that Jesus demonstrates to us and he commands us to practice that kind of love in the context of believing community and in our homes. Then there's that love that, that uh, our, our married man over here, our married representative, Sean Gunning, brought up. Eros. That's that, the, the kind of love that when you say, I'm in love, being in love, it's, it's a, a lover sort of love. We see pictures of that in Scripture. Christ the bridegroom. The church, the bride, waiting and ready for his return. In Ephesians 5, instructions that Paul gives to us husbands that we are to love our wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so that's a picture that Eros love is also a picture of Jesus' love for his followers. I think with that 
type of love more than any of the ones that we've looked at already, it's really easy to see the perversions and distortions, right? When you hear the word erotic, you're not picturing the kind of love that Jesus has for the church because there's a lot of other images and messages from our sinful fallen world that creep into our understanding. But you know, eros isn't alone in that. There's distortions and perversions of every one of these loves that we've seen. And we'll get into that a bit today as we look at this additional kind of love called affection. Before we look at that, also one more chapter I would point you to is the love chapter. You know, maybe you on your wedding day, those of you who are married, had this, a portion of this read, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's a whole list of how complex love is, the multifaceted views of love. Love is patient, it's kind. Love does not envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it doesn't keep any record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's a big kind of love. That's a, a broad definition of love. And Jesus perfectly demonstrates all aspects of love and he commands us, Love each other in that way because the world's watching. The love that I'd like us to focus in on today, the, lo- the word that's used here in Romans 12, is this love called storge that Brady brought up. This is the kind of love that you see in a family. It's affection. It's, it's the love that a parent has for a child and a child for a parent. It's comfortable. It's familiar. Let me read you a paragraph from C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves to give us an idea of what this affection love is all about. The Greeks called this love storge. I shall here call it simply affection. My Greek lexicon defines storge as affection, especially of parents to offspring, but also of offspring to parents. And that, I have no doubt, is the original form of the thing, as well as the central meaning of the word. The image we must start with is that of a mother nursing a baby, or a female dog, or a mother cat with a basket full of puppies or kittens, all in a squeaking, nuzzling heap together. Purrings, lickings, baby talk, milk, warmth, the smell of young life. Does that describe your home? Does that describe our church? You know, where it just, it feels right. It's comfortable. This is the place to belong. There's welcome that's given and received. We see this, examples of this, this kind of parent-child love. Uh, Jesus himself in John chapter 15 Verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The Father and the Son, the example of their love for one another. You know, we bristle at that word commandments. 
But when we were young children, we didn't. It felt safe. In our own families, the relationship between mom and dad, that trust, that familiarity, that comfortableness, it felt like this is, the world is right. And there's, you know, as we got older and that sin nature really got legs, we started pushing that off and that affection was a little harder to come by. But, but when things are really operating as they should in a family and there's a love between a, a father and a daughter or a mother and a son or a parent and a child, there's affection reciprocated by obedience to commands, reciprocated by a desire for what's best for you. And it all feels like a bunch of puppies in a huddle snuggled together with that mother dog, giving and receiving warmth and nourishment, that affection. Paul captures this in his letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, the letter starts out. Paul introduces himself, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then he goes to the, to the who is he addressing it to? To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Okay, he's not actually Timothy's literal biological dad. But he says, you're, you're truly my child in the faith. And it's that sort of affection that prefaces his letter to this young preacher in Ephesus. He says, I'm like a dad to you. I, I, man, I am cheering for you. I'm, I'm believing in you. I enjoy our time together. I look forward to seeing you again. And I've got some instructions for you like a dad does. Paul also, Paul, there's another letter in 1 Thessalonians from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And in chapter 2, if you look at that, you'll see this affection dripping throughout that whole chapter where Paul is saying, I miss you, I love you, I can't wait to be with you again. Whenever I hear good reports of what's happening, it brings joy to me. And he uses that family metaphor twice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I mean, this is a dude using that metaphor to say, I feel this kind of affection for you, that kind of closeness to the whole church in Thessalonia. I love you like a mom loves her baby that's nursing. And then he, a couple verses later, he says this, Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So he's both parents in, in chapter 2 of, of 1 Thessalonians. Like a mother nursing her baby or like a dad who's exhorting, encouraging, charging to walk worthy. Uh, and sometimes parenting is like that, right? You know, where the mother, like we've had this when we're out on hikes and the kids are going off to some precarious places. And Heidi, you know, the one who nursed them, is saying, hey, don't, 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 don't go so close to the edge. Come down from there. And I'm going, it's all right. You know, they, they, it's only 20, 30 feet. They probably won't die. Right? And so, and so you, get that, you get that picture here of that storge love, that affection love, that kind of familial love that's saying, this is a safe place. You belong. You're welcome. 
So here in Romans 12, uh, we're going to read this verse as, as we get a little further into the chapter. And verse 10 is where the, the word occurs. And it says, Love one another with brotherly affection. So the, the interesting part, if you look at that, if you look at that in the Greek, when Paul says in verse 10, love one another, he's using Philadelphia. He's using that give brotherly love to each other. And then he says, with brotherly affection. He actually makes up a word that doesn't occur anywhere else in, I believe, in any Greek literature. But he takes the word philo from Philadelphia and storge and smushes them together. So have brotherly affection to, toward one another uh, is like saying, in your friendship, have it be a, an affectionate friendship in the body of Christ. And so we'll dig into that because I think it's not just a one-off sentence in this chapter of Romans 12, but it fits within the broader context. Romans 12 begins with some instructions about our relationship with God and our posture toward Him, that we're to live as living sacrifices to God, that we submit ourselves to Him, that we lay ourselves out on the altar like a, a lamb that's sacrificed. And we don't follow the pattern of this world. We don't conform to that any longer, but we're transformed by renewing our minds so that we may test and prove God's will, His good, perfect, and pleasing will. So there's a, a sacrificed way of living that in the end results in not looking like the pattern of this world, but instead living by the plans of God, living by His Word, knowing his good plan. So it really right relationship with one another begins with right relationship with God. And then we get into some practical instructions from Paul to the church in Rome and also instructions from the Holy Spirit through Paul to the church in Rome and the church in southeast Aurora. And so let's read together now in verse 3. It says, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Right at the beginning here, we have the word grace. That's the name of our daughter, charis, the Greek word. Charis is right here. So it, it's grace or gift. So there's a, there is a gift or there is grace given to each member of the body of Christ. And so because of that, we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. You know, we could be looking at that grace, that gift that God has given. I could be looking at that and going, man, I am so awesome because God gave me this gift. Paul's cautioning against that way of thinking. It's not because of the gift or the recipient of the gift that we celebrate and rejoice and take pride, it's the giver that gets all the glory. He's the one who pours out grace and pours out gifts within the body. And so when I receive a gift from him, I should be humbled by that, to recognize how mighty he is, that he would give a grace to me, give a gift to me. And then to start to be introspective and think, why did he give me this gift? Why did he give me this grace? Look at that with sober judgment. Realize that it's really all about him. 
And if we're going to love like Jesus, as he commanded in John 13, then we can't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Because love always involves putting the other first. And that's the caution here in Romans 12, that there's a disconnect between receiving a gift from God as an expression of his love And then turning that into a point of pride where we think more highly of ourselves and it ends up being a rift in our relationships within the body of Christ. The the reason that Paul gives an exhortation here, which is an encouraging instruction, is because there's hope of development in this area. You know, if it was just a done deal and you're either going to be self-focused or other-focused, he wouldn't need to give any instruction. The fact is, anytime you see an exhortation, it should give us hope that wherever I am today, God can draw me deeper. There can be an additional work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I can look a little bit more like Jesus in this area on December 31st than I did on January 1st. And so Paul gives that hope to the church In Rome, a divided church. And they've had a a complicated history there in the city of Rome. The gospel reached them. And this is a, a Gentile region. They didn't have the whole background of the Old Testament. But some missionaries traveled to this city, leaving Jerusalem, leaving the land of Palestine, brought the gospel to the church in Rome. And you've got some Gentile believers, some baby Christians who coming out of paganism have now found out that there is one true God, maker of heaven and earth. And that he came himself in the form of Jesus, died on the cross to bring redemption, to set what was wrong right, to bring forgiveness, to give hope. And so they've now turned from darkness to light. And really they're looking to their Jewish Christian missionaries as the example of how do we walk this out faithfully until you have an emperor who makes Judaism illegal in Rome. And now all those Jewish believers have to leave. The government forces them out. And you've got these baby Christians left in Rome. And a period of time goes by where they're, they're having to make their faith their own. And they're having to go to God and grow. And there's leaders that begin to emerge. And then there's some time that passes, and now there's a new edict from the emperor, and the Jews are allowed to return to Rome. Well, what happens if you were the missionary several years ago, and you had to leave, and you come back? Well, your role has changed. Your status has changed. Um, Could be a little disturbing, right? Because, you know, you would want to come back and take charge again. But these baby Christians are not such baby Christians anymore. And they've got their own leadership. There's some new practices that they've got in the church. And some of those things are going to look very wrong and evil to you. They might be having bacon at their men's breakfast. And you're coming back going, uh-uh, that's an unclean meat. And they're going, well, yeah, for you guys, you're Jews. And so Paul's writing a letter to the Romans with this complicated 
collision of two world, earthly cultures, this worldly cultures, trying to live together within the kingdom of God. And in that context, he says, remember, you've been given a gift, a grace from God. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And he goes on, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So he's using a metaphor like believers in Rome. Look at your own body. It's a complicated organism. You've got ligaments, tendons, muscles, a vascular system, a digestive system, an excretory system, a reproductive system, a nervous system. I probably missed some systems. And all that stuff, as complicated as it is, works together in one body. That's how it is with you. He uses the same metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there he talks about some of the, the, he really makes a ridiculous story to talk about some of the challenges. Like, you know, don't be a body where one body part is saying, I don't need you. Don't Don't be like a foot to a hand or an ear to an eye where you have an inferiority complex and you say, I don't really belong to the body. The rest of you don't need me. But on the other hand, don't be like an eye to the hand or the head to the feet saying, I don't need you. A superiority complex. So there is a risk that Paul draws out in 1 Corinthians 12 of having diversity without unity. And we're seeing a bit of that here in Romans 12 as well. You are many different body parts, but one body. Somehow the marriage of that diversity and unity. Okay, it'd be really easy to have the unity without any diversity. If all you had was a bunch of elbows in the room, they'd all be going, oh yeah, you, you guys are exactly like me. You're awesome. It's those, uh, you know, it's those knees. that what, what, What's with them? Why are they not acting like elbows? What's wrong with them? Right? On the other hand, to have diversity without unity is a mess as well. And so Paul is instructing the church in Rome and the Holy Spirit is speaking to us today and saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Yes, you have a gift, but remember you're a part of the body. And each person around you has a gift from God as well. And working together, that diversity is a beautiful thing. Well, so we've got, we each have a gift. We're in one body. The next thing Paul says is, use it. Put it to work. So he says in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And again there in verse 6, you're seeing uh, the same word twice, but just translated differently in our English version to show the complexity of that word. So having gifts or graces 
that differ according to the grace or gift given to us. So there's a variety. It's multifaceted. It's interestingly different. That's the way God works within the body. And that word there, gift, grace, it's the word charismata. So whatever you think about the word charismatic, I hope you are one. Because you've been given a gift, a grace from God. It's diverse, it's multifaceted, it's to be used to build up and edify the body and glorify God. And I think sometimes the word charismatic gets a negative label because people think it's emotionalism. But really the root of that word, the meaning of it, is there's a gift, there's a grace that God has given to you. It's to build up the body and glorify Him. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if in our world there was just one type of bird, one feather color, one song, and all other birds were were eradicated for expedience, convenience, maybe a disdain for particular aspects or characteristics of some of those other colors or the songs. And all that diversity was reduced to one type of a bird. And it's easy to see that in nature. And yet often in our relationships with one another, we're we're short-tempered with each other. We are impatient with one another. And really when you dig to the underlying root cause of that, it's because we really wish everyone else was more like me. Right? How many of you would admit that? Like you wish that other driver would drive more like you. You wish that coworker would phrase things the way you phrase things. You wish that spouse would squeeze the tube from the bottom and flatten it as she goes up like you do. And as it says on the instructions. Right? And whatever it is, really it comes down to uh, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Wishing that the diversity did not exist. Wishing that everyone else in our home or in our church thought about things, spoke about things, did things the exact same way we do, in lockstep. And yet, Paul here is, is instructing us that those differences are interesting, they're multifaceted, they're complementary. They should be recognized as gifts from God. And really, that he's leading now into a discussion of affection. But it begins with this recognition of diversity and a humility that goes along with that. To see value in others around us. That, that's the starting point. You know, once we've put ourselves as sacrifices, living sacrifices before God, once we've rejected the pattern of this world, we're not going to conform to that anymore. We need to be transformed. And then we begin to recognize God has given us gifts and grace, not because we're so cool, but because he is so gracious and loving. And it's given as a part of the diverse picture within his body that everything be done to build up and it's to be used. Then we get to that place of affection where we're really humming in a way that it's fun. Affection's a good thing, you know. 
uh, a bunch of puppies huddled together snuggling. That's awesome. Like that's the kind of thing you take a picture of and put on a calendar, right? You know, we're drawn to that. There's warmth. It's that relational glue that holds a diverse group of people together. Apart from affection, all you've got is the the diversity and the differences. You're missing the unity piece. What about, in real practicality, what about this week in your home? Is there a lack of affection? You know, we just came through uh, the Hallmark greeting card holiday uh, um, called Valentine's Day, right? Uh, you know, so maybe, maybe this week you bought a card or you bought some chocolate or you went out to a restaurant, you got some flowers for someone, and you expressed love in that way by, by a gift. Uh, you know, that can be a, a way that affection is shown. But I'd challenge you this week to, in light of what we've just read here in Romans 12, to implement affection in your family. To put yourself in the background and put that other person in the foreground, whether it's a, a spouse, a parent, a child. Start to think through, really, what are the gifts that God has placed in that person? How are they gifted? What's the grace God has given to them? And maybe it's something that, you know, sometimes can rub you the wrong way because it's so different from how you're wired. But as you begin to prayerfully consider the way that your spouse is gifted, the way that your child or that other family member is gifted. What if you were to put that to paper and write a note of encouragement this week and say, I love this about you. You are really good at this. I think affirmation is a great way to give affection. In fact, we need that in the body of Christ as well. To give some affirmation, some encouragement, some thanks. And that's the relational glue that makes all the other aspects of love work a whole lot better. It's like the, maybe a better analogy would be, it's the grease in the gears that keeps everything else spinning. Because, you know, frankly, there are some aspects of love that are tougher. Part of, part of uh, love in a marriage is seeing that person that God is creating my spouse to be and helping her get there. And there better be some affirmation and encouragement along the way. If it's all pointing out her flaws and her shortcomings and her weaknesses, she's not going to make any progress toward becoming more Christ-like. I'm going to fail in my task of a husband in sanctifying her and presenting her to the Lord and helping her become who God has called her to be. But with, with ample amounts of affirmation and affection, everything flows a lot better. It's the same in the church. So this week, pray that God will put that person on your mind, whether it's in your family or in church or both. Maybe somebody at work that you will liberally give that affection to by some words of affirmation. Let's dig into now the last few verses here of chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
I think this is a reminder that there's a distorted version of each of the loves that we've mentioned in the New Testament that we'll come across as we revisit this topic throughout the year. So, so let love be genuine. Well, what is fake love? That's the question that I bring to this text as I, as I hear an, an encouragement, a challenge to have genuine love. What would fake love look like? I think fake love is just me loving myself. Fake love is, is when the gift love is actually just me needing to be needed. You know, when I give affection, there's strings attached. I'm saying something nice to you because I want to hear something nice back. I'm saying something nice to you because I want other people around here to see me being nice to you. Really, that's all about me. There's no genuine affection in that sort of affection. It's manipulative. It's self-focused. It goes along with thinking of myself more highly than I ought. So that's what we want to abhor. But what we want to hold fast to, the good that we see modeled in Jesus, exemplified in him, commanded by him, what does that look like? Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know, we, we do the first part of that sentence really well, right? In our families. That one-upsmanship in our church. Striving to outdo one another. And Paul turns that on its head and goes, no, yeah, outdo one another in showing honor. You know, it, it reminds me, I, I, I don't know if this was a commercial where, that, where I've got this in my head. You the man. No, you the man. Right? Outdo one another in propping, propping the other one up and giving honor to one another. In showing honor. What if in our homes we would compete to show honor to a sibling instead of competing you know, to prove that you know more than them or that your approach is better. What if you'd say, no, I'm going to honor you. No, you just sit down. Let me get that for you. What if we would compete to show honor children to a parent? Not just on special days. You know, oh, it's Mother's Day. I guess i got to do my honor my mother thing today. But what if just out of the blue... You'd say, today is a day I'm going to focus on serving and blessing in fostering an atmosphere of affection right here in this church or in this home by competing to show honor, giving recognition, giving thanks, receiving it graciously when it's directed toward you instead of demanding it. It's my birthday! And really that, that joy will be complete as we give and receive affection in appropriate godly ways. There's a feeling that comes along with affection. It's that feeling that I am safe. I'm welcomed. I'm valued. I'm received. When I bring my gift that God's given to me, the people around me, even though they don't have the same gift, 
see value in that gift, and I'm appreciated. And then it's more than that because that, if you stop there, it could be self-focused, but it's then projecting that out to others and saying, I want you to feel genuinely loved as well. I want you to feel that warmth and that compassion and that safety and that sense of belonging as well. That's when that affection is really powerful within the body of Christ. When there's a place where you receive welcome and you presume welcome and you extend welcome, you give welcome to others around you. I think if we get humming on this, the world will know that we are his disciples. It's not, this, this is not a normal uh, baseline human characteristic. That, yeah, just normally when, when groups of people get together, you've got this very thing that I've just described happening. It's kind of automatic. No, we, we, we strive to outdo one another in exerting our power, in voicing our perspectives, drowning out anyone else, putting ourselves first. Paul's saying, no, if you are to submit to the God who made you and gifted you and has poured out grace and has shown you what it is to live not for yourself but for bringing glory to God and living sacrificially to others, the world's going to see something different about you in your home and in your church. That feeling of genuine belonging. It's not just a feeling. There's, there is action required. Verse 11, it says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit or in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Affection takes work. It's practical. It's not just a feeling. It is a feeling. It's not less than a feeling. Affection, it feels good to belong. That's a good thing. But it even goes beyond that. There's work that's involved. It's, it's a spirit-filled way of living. There's serving involved. There's rejoicing. There's hope. There's patience. There's constant prayer. We need God's help to have this in our homes, to have affection present in our homes and in our church. It's a gift love. There's giving involved with affection. And then that word hospitality. There's opening our lives up to one another. There's breaking bread together is a big part of affection. In fact, that's where it most naturally occurs. Uh, you know, when you break bread together with someone, that's just a fancy biblical way of saying eat food. This is something, you know, th- th- this is a whole like political science study. When world leaders are about to like, you know, flip that lever up and push that red button, blow that other country off the map, their diplomats will say, you know, let's get together and eat some food first. And a lot of times as they eat food together, they work stuff out. Like, you know, that leader of that other nation is actually a human with a family. Maybe I'll kill him next week. And they call that commensality is the big is the big word. That's when you just when you get together and eat food together. 
This is a common New Testament practice. Uh, you know, in the book of Acts, you've got people sharing. They're eating food together. In, in Corinthians, the instructions about the Lord's Supper. Whenever you guys get together and eat food, as you always will, naturally, remember what Jesus did and look forward to his return. And we've turned it into just a ceremonial thing that we do one day out of the month, right? And I, I think really the heart of that, of that teaching in 1 Corinthians is every time you guys break bread together and drink wine, remember the body of our Lord. Remember his shed blood. Whether it's over a cup of coffee at Legends or over a... I'm not going to start giving brand. I don't want to give commercials here. Eating a chicken sandwich at a popular restaurant that's not open on Sundays. <laughs> Do it in a way that brings affection within the body, that builds that, gives glory to God, that remembers that we're together in remembering what Jesus did and in looking forward to his return. We're a part of a kingdom, not of this earth. And affection develops well in that atmosphere of giving and receiving hospitality. Let's finish out the chapter, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's our because that's our gut instinct, right? Oh, you just curse me? Well, let me let me bless you. Um, yeah, you know, you 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 showed me one of your fingers while you drove past me. Let me just give you a smile and a wave and pray that God blesses you today. Man, we need the Holy Spirit working in us in order to be able to put this into practice, don't we? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Um, this is different than our world. Usually when someone else is rejoicing, our base instinct is to be jealous. How come they had that good thing happen and I didn't? And when somebody else is weeping, our base instinct is to say, better them than me. And, but when the Holy Spirit's at work within our hearts and we're not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, we start to be able to really put ourselves in the shoes of our brother or sister in Christ, of our family member, and feel the same joy they're feeling because something good is happening and God is blessing them. Feel the same pain that they're experiencing because we care about them at a deep level. There's that affection that closeness that's at work. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Here's how affection gets real practical. The actions that come along with genuine love as demonstrated by brotherly affection. We bless. We rejoice together. We weep together. We strive for harmony. We practice humility. We don't think that there's anyone beneath us. We give honor. We go after peace. We flat out give. We strive to right a wrong. And we retaliate with good. Get even with that person who's wronged you by blessing them, by doing good to them. That's something that Jesus did. You know, he's on the cross. And what does he say? Father, please forgive them, for they know not what they do. Man, I mean, he's literally on a cross. Maybe you are feeling this week like you have a cross to bear. And there's someone who's wronged you and hurt you and they'd like to crucify you. You're going to need God's help to get to that place where you pray a prayer of blessing over them. And you say, God, despite the way they've wronged me, I bless them. I ask that you would forgive them, be merciful to them, be gracious to them. And as you do that, know that that's a miracle happening in your heart. Know that that's something you, you didn't do in your own strength. That's something only God can work in you. And as you are faithful to practice that, affection will be a type of love you're able to express in your own family and in your church. That's a gift that God gives. In your home, in your interactions with your own family, do you have a list of grievances that you've been saving up? You know, those, you can maybe, maybe even got dates connected with, I remember on this date you said this. I remember that time when you did this, when you forgot to do that, when you said you would and didn't. Well, keep that list of grievances because you need it to obey this passage. Because each of those wrongs is an opportunity for you to retaliate with blessing and with good. And so take that list of grievances. Oh, this is awesome. I've got some practical things now that I can, let's see, how am I going to bless for that thing that she said, that, that, that thing that he did? What's the, what's the way that I can bless and do good in retaliation? And, I mean, you may even find some guilty pleasure in it to go, you know, it's, there is that part about heaping burning coals. So I'm going to do it with that. that. That's the only motivation I've got is I want their head to heat up a little bit. Go for it. I, th- I think we've got permission right here in the, in the last verse. But really, the, the ability to do that begins with a trust in the sovereignty of God. If you're the one who has to bring about vengeance, you put yourself in the place of God. It's when you go, you know, God is really in control of my life. And so he, he's got this. And in his time, he'll, he'll right the wrong and, and there will be justice. For today, I'm called to do good. I'm called to bless. I'm called to create an atmosphere 
where affection is present, where there's genuine love at work. And there's things I need to do to make that happen. And there's a whole list of them here in this paragraph we read at the end of Romans 12. In church, you know, is there a, an evil that's affected you? Is there discord or disunity? Have you been thinking about vengeance? Well, the admonition to us today from God's Word is that we trust in God, that we give graciously and generously, that we do good and leave the results up to Him. Let's make that our prayer today in our homes and in our church that as the watching world's looking to us to see what does it look like to follow Jesus, we would be a true picture of that aspect of Christian love called affection that we've been looking at today. Could we stand together? Lord God, we thank you for the love that you so lavishly poured out on each of us, that we are called sons and daughters of God. Thank you that we're not slaves. You've drawn us close to yourselves. You've adopted us. There is that safe, belonging, welcoming sort of love and affection that only exists in a safe home. And we thank you, each of us as individuals, we give you thanks for that, Lord. Thank you. I thank you for the diversity in this room. All the different shapes and sizes and personalities and giftings and graces that you've poured out. Skin colors, backgrounds, worldviews, the, the beauty of the diversity of your good creation. And Lord, forgive us for when we as individuals have thought more highly of ourselves than we ought. Lord, we pray that with the diversity we would have that next step that you call us to, that unity, where we see ourselves as one body, we see the value in other members of the body. We know that the world is watching us to get a picture of your kingdom. And we pray that as they look to us, they would see that we are your disciples because we love like you do, Lord Jesus. Go with us now, we pray. We pray that that affection would be present in our homes this week. It would be growing in our church starting today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.